Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing the first topical gene therapy for rare skin disease and the first dry eye disease treatment. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter, Vera Kovacevic, and Sarah Hand. Thanks for coming today. I'm going to start us off with a story about the very first topical gene therapy having been approved by the FDA for a rare skin disease. So last week, Crystal Biotech's Vijuvic was awarded uh, FDA approval, um, and it made that the very first topical gene therapy for the treatment of wounds in patients with the rare and often debilitating skin disease called dystrophic epidermolysis. Wow, to say that again. Okay. Called dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, or DEB. Now, Vijuvic is also the very first drug that is approved to treat this disease, and it's also Crystal Biotech's first approved product. So, a lot of firsts here uh, for sure. And as a topical treatment, it's also the first readily um, redosable gene therapy as well. Now, talking a bit more about this debilitating uh, skin condition, DEV is a genetic disorder that's characterized by very fragile skin that can easily rip and blister um, even from minor friction, like minor rubbing or scratching or injury as well. And that can result in open wounds that are prone to skin infections and fibrosis. DEB patients are also at an increased risk of aggressive skin cancer. So the disease usually presents at birth and it's caused by one or more mutations in the uh, COL7A1 gene, which encodes type 7 collagen or uh, collagen, call 7. And this is an important protein that helps connect and strengthen, also stabilize the outer and middle layers of the skin. So if you have a deficiency in this type of collagen, the layers of skin can separate to cause painful and debilitating blisters and wounds. There are two types of DEB. There is a recessive and a dominant type, and the dominant version is usually milder than the recessive one. Um, the recessive type can be debilitating and lead to disfigurement, vision loss, and other fatal complications. And so there is a significant unmet need uh, for this uh, disease as there were no previous treatments for it. So this is really a huge milestone um, and a very innovative one at that, being the very first topical gene therapy. And uh, so... Vijuvic is a genetically modified herpes simplex type 1 virus, which functions as a vector to deliver copies of the Col7A1 gene when applied to uh, DEB wounds. And so the way the treatment works is that um, it's mixed into an excipient gel before applied topically by a healthcare professional. And the gel is applied evenly in droplets on a patient's wounds once a week. 
The safety and efficacy of Vejuvic were evaluated in a phase three trial involving 31 patients with DEV. And at 24 weeks, 65% of Vejuvic treated wounds were completely closed, um, and that was taken as the primary endpoint, while only 26% of placebo treated wounds um, closed. And in another study, they also took a look at two young patients with recessive DEB. So again, the more severe form of the disease. They were six and seven months of age, the patients there. And they received topical vejuvic weekly without any um, new or you know, significant safety findings that were different from um, in, the, in the trial involving adults. Uh, the results of the trials are published in the journals Nature Medicine and the New England Journal of Medicine as well. And so the primary investigator of the phase three trial, Peter uh, Marinkovich, um, he's also the director of the Blistering Disease Clinic at Stanford, said that until now, doctors and nurses had no way to stop blisters and wounds from developing on dystrophic EB patient skin. And so all they could really do was to give bandages and helplessly watch as new blisters form. And so the approval of Vejuvic changes all of this, he said, by healing wounds and preventing skin from re-blistering. And so given its topical application, Vejuvic doesn't require a lot of supporting technology or specialized expertise. And so it makes it very, uh, you know, makes it highly accessible even to patients who may live far away from specialized centers. And so that's definitely an, an advantage of um, a treatment like this. Vejuvic is approved for patients six months of age and older, again, with either recessive or dominant DEB. Crystal Biotech expects Vejuvic to be available by the third quarter of this year. And Vejuvic received FDA orphan drug, fast track, regenerative medicine, advanced therapy, as well as priority review designations, in addition to a rare pediatric disease priority review voucher. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, I think, again, it's a major milestone. Have you ever even heard of something being developed along the lines of a topical gene therapy? Because gene therapy delivery has, all, has been such a huge challenge for the past couple of decades, and only now are we getting into sort of next-gen versions um, where we're able to see drugs finally um, getting approved, and now we have a topical version of it. Yeah, I've never I've never heard of topical gene therapy. And in fact, when you were um, discussing the story, I was wondering, well, if it's a topical therapy, it's probably like a liquid because it's administered in droplets. And I was thinking, well, why wouldn't the patient be able to administer it themselves? Perhaps maybe on their back they can't. But also, um, I think the price of the therapy, it's very costly. It's very expensive. Yeah. yeah, so you probably need a healthcare professional to make sure it's administered properly and well, and perhaps also for like safety reasons as well. Um, it needs to be administered like the correct amount and the right mm -hmm. spots. Dosing, like that. Yeah. yeah. So at first I was like, oh, it would alleviate the patient burden a bit if they could just do it at home. But I think just because the therapy is so advanced, it's not really for home use yet. Yeah, that's a really good point, Vera. I was also thinking because it's just yeah, mixed into this excipient gel. I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe they can um, mix this up at compounding pharmacies and then you'd go pick it up mm -hmm. like any other, you know, like a hydrocortisone cream or something. But 
I think because it's being placed on these like open wounds as well, it's not something yeah. that they're just able to kind of like rub in um, mm. liberally. So I I also thought that I thought okay maybe it's something they could uh, they could take home. I you know what I had never even thought that a gene therapy could be delivered this way. I think this opens up the door for a lot of other skin conditions, mm-hmm. um, and I hadn't heard of this particular condition either, DEB, which just sounds yeah. awful. So I think that's yeah. great that there's this option now. Um, I'm wondering since they said it's a it's a the first readily redosable gene therapy. I mean, I I wonder, is this, would this eventually be curative and and that patients wouldn't be even getting the the sores Mm -hmm. anymore? Um, I think the intent of, you know, most gene therapies, if not all, is curative. But I think with most gene therapies, it's a time will tell kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. So trials, you know evaluating these therapies don't run more than a year or two. And so they don't, you know, we don't really know um, what will happen after that and and whether or not, and this is the case for many other gene therapies that have been approved. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know whether or not patients will need to get another dose essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, I think um, that there, that's a big unknown around a lot of these gene therapies. And so, while other gene therapies, of course, you can redose as well, but I think this is just easier to do given its formulation. And so that's why they're kind of touting it to be, you know, it's the first kind of easily redosable gene therapy. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, a challenge to look out for whether or not indeed um, these therapies are curative and what, what their durability is. Mm if they're not curative. Yeah, well, I see from the clinical trial data that you discussed, Aisha, I see Mm -hmm. that at 24 weeks, 65% of the wounds treated with the gene therapy completely closed, but on placebo was only 26%. So 65% on the gene therapy, I mean, that's not like 100%. To be honest, I was expecting like almost all of the wounds to close just because of how effective gene therapies are. Um, so that's a little bit, it is, it was a little bit surprising to me, but I think maybe more time, uh, is needed for like the rest of the wounds to close because, um, yeah, unless the wounds were like agitated while they were healing. I was thinking that, and I was thinking, what about the severity? Did they like grade them based on severity? So maybe some wounds are deeper essentially than others. Uh, right, and they were they, looking like, controlled for that. Yeah, they were looking at um, complete wound closure, so mm-hmm. you would have to achieve like a hundred percent closure. So even if you're getting seventy five percent, eighty percent, I think that would that's still really good. But I think that that was not their primary endpoint that they uh, looked at. So it was like a hundred percent closure. So they were very. Mm-hmm. It was more. It was quite stringent in terms of um, that endpoint. But yeah, if you take a look at this disease, I was just looking at pictures. It's just absolutely terrible. Like it's, um, and, and for so long not having any treatment for it. Um, so this is extremely, extremely big. And I think um, it could be a game changer again, like, you know, for other diseases as well, uh, skin conditions and maybe other, um, you know, non-skin conditions as well. Um, just opening up 
this new route or this new kind of formulation for gene therapies. Um, and it's, it's great that it's more accessible than say conventional therapies where you would have to go in and need specialized equipment. So I think it's, um, it could definitely be game changing. Okay, moving on to our next story. This is also another FDA approval. So eye care uh, giant Bosch & Lom received its very first prescription drug approval from the FDA for its dry eye disease medication, Mebo. So these eye drops are the first and only FDA approved treatment that directly target tear evaporation at the ocular surface to treat the signs and symptoms of dry eye disease. And Bosch and Lom said that, you know, this drug addresses a significant unmet need for patients. So dry eye disease is among the most common ocular surface disorders. It affects millions of people in the U.S. And um, it's caused by abnormally high levels of tear evaporation. So that's the leading cause of the condition. And it's often associated with the clinical signs of a condition called mebobian um, Mebomian, sorry, gland dysfunction or MGD. And this disorder is caused by changes in the tear lipid layer, um, namely abnormalities in the oil glands along the lash line. And so an unstable tear film triggers increased dryness, inflammation, and damage to the ocular surface. And uh, so symptoms of dry eye disease include things like burning, drier, itchy eyes, blurred vision, sensitivity to light, and eye redness. And the condition is diagnosed based on the amount and quality of tears through a dilated eye exam. Reduced tear production is another cause of the disease. So either you can have um, like low levels of tear production or high levels of tears evaporating from the ocular surface. So these are two of the main um, kind of uh, causes of dry eye disease. And... Most commonly, um, dry eye disease treatments include over-the-counter eye drops like artificial tears for mild disease. And there are also treatments um, such as Abvi's Restasis and Novartis' Zedra, which are prescription treatments for more severe cases. And these are um, more targeted towards helping the eyes actually make more tears, so to increase the volume of tears. And so uh, Bosch and Lom's um, Mebo is innovative in the sense that, again, it's the very first medication that targets tear evaporation as opposed to other medications that uh, just treat symptoms or target um, increasing the actual, pro actual production of tears. So Mebo's FDA approval was based on two phase three clinical trials that involved a total of uh, over 1,200 patients with a history of dry eye disease and signs of MGD. And the company reported that in the 57-day studies, patients experienced lasting symptom relief as early as day 15 and maintained uh, a significant reduction in eye dryness compared with uh, placebo. So Bosch and Lam is set to launch Mebo in the second half of this year. And um, so in the latter half of 2019, the company had actually already secured an exclusive license for Mebo in the U.S. and Canada, and the amount of that was not disclosed. So the global dry eye disease market is is huge. It's valued at over $5.5 billion. And that was in 2022. And North America holds the largest market share at 37.6%. 
Um, there are other drug makers looking to enter the dry eye disease space as a competitor uh, to Mebo. So Alderia Therapeutics is looking to also um, give some competition to Mebo with its drug uh, called Reproxilab. And um, the drug is currently under FDA review. Uh, Viatris also has a generic version of Restasis, uh, which could also be a competitor because, of course, given the lower cost of generics. And so there's a lot of activity happening in the dry eye disease space. And um, yeah, Mebo is uh, the latest one in the books. So just wanted to get your thoughts on this. And Sarah, I know that you're our kind of informal dry eye disease expert here at X Talks <laughs> have been having written a lot about the condition and, you know, uh, new approvals um, for it. Yeah, well, the thing I think that really um, strikes me about dry eye in general is that uh, it, it, you know, there's been a lot of um, criticism of, you know, is this a real is this a real disease? Like, is this mm. really, or is this just, okay, you have dry eyes, but you know, I spoke to a few years ago, a couple of, um, a couple of experts, some ophthalmologists in the space, and they said, it's just the impact on your quality of life is yeah. substantial. Um, and so it certainly is a, a real disease. And so I think, uh, I think that's part of why there's been so much activity in the space. One thing that that's jumps out to me about Mebo is that um, I was just thinking, so what's the mechanism of action in terms of how it's going to treat dry eye and, and inhibit tear evaporation since it is a, you know, a different type of treatment. Um, and it's, it's actually unknown. It's, it's exact mechanism of action, mm -hmm. but it, uh, I'm just reading on another site here, forms a monolayer at the air liquid interface of the tear film that can be expected to reduce evaporation. I always think that's interesting when a drug is approved, but we don't really know, you know, it works, but we don't really know yeah. why it works. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's encouraging that there's a different option aside from Restasis or Zidra uh, for patients for whom maybe those treatments didn't work or they're not suitable for some reason. Uh, I think it's good there's an alternative. Yeah. And with millions of people in the U.S. with dry eye disease, I mean, I'm sure it, this new drug is going to find its audience. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. it's for if it's for a rare disease and there's already two approved treatments, I would say this is going to be tough. But if it's for a disease where you have millions of people suffering from it, I think, yeah, I think um, really it's it, it will have its um, market share. I also found it interesting that the U.S. makes up, um, you know, over 37 percent of the dry eye disease treatment market share and does that indicate that the disease is more prevalent in the u.s and if so why would kind of that that be it's uh mm. kind of interesting to think about that as well, well I, I was wondering if oh no go ahead Thank you. Um, I was wondering if the disease was, and maybe you covered this, um, if it's uh, genetic or if it just develops over your life or if it can be either. Yeah, I think it just is something that develops. I don't think I found okay. anything to suggest that it's, yeah. it, it has a genetic component. I think it develops and there's been like various, I, I don't think they even fully understand why it develops. I think sometimes it's like a result of... Um, 
like other medications someone might be on, but also just like general eye strain. And so uh, one of the experts I spoke to a few years ago was saying, because everyone's staring at computer screens, yeah. you're actually blinking less. So you're, you're um, refreshing your eye surface less. There was also uh, some speculation that when we were all masking all the time, particularly yeah. like, you know, frontline workers who are wearing masks for 8, 10, 12 hours a day um, and people who also wear glasses that the mask when you were breathing out, uh, some of the air would actually sort of flow over the ocular surface and, and dry it out. Um, and so there was a real sort of like uptick in this mask associated dry eye when everyone was uh, was masking. I don't know if that's still an issue, particularly in, you know, hospitals where we're these healthcare workers are still masking. Yeah, um, yeah I think it's generally a, just something, symptoms that, that come up. Yeah, and I also wonder if it could be from like wearing contact lenses chronically. Mm -hmm. It can be, yeah. I'm oh. just reading about it. It can be from wearing contact lenses, yeah, regularly or just being in dry indoor environments. Again, like how Sarah mentioned, being in front of screens. And so those are all you know, components of modern day North American society. And so it's kind of no surprise that probably the incidence is much, is higher in places like the U.S. over other countries. And so that's why you have such a huge market share, um, you know, comprised of the U.S. market. So I think also just the, like, uh, whenever I see that an area has a higher incidence of something like this, I think, okay, the, you know, specialists, the physicians in that area, um, maybe are just diagnosing it more often. You know, I, mm -hmm. I often think yeah. in other countries, you know, how recognized is dry eye, let's say, right. um, as, as something that they would, um, that they would diagnose. And so sometimes I think that's why it's sort of an uptick as well. Mm -hmm. I also was wondering if, um, you know, areas that have like high rates of like forest fire or the air quality is poor um mm -hmm. if it's more common among those areas too because even if uh and if you're there for for a long amount of time or for your for your entire life uh because even if you visit an area that has lower air quality i mean you start to notice your eyes are like you know you're blinking more you're trying to make up for it um so i wonder if um you know maybe in north america we just have some like more more prevalent um of like forest fires or you know lower air quality but i know it's not exclusive to north america of course but just trying to think of some reasons why we we uh, or we're just you know yeah like, you know we're just diagnosing it more we're just complaining more i don't know if that's the problem <laughs> but i do think it is legitimate absolutely yeah yeah there are studies here that I'm uh, looking at um, that have looked at the impact of air pollution on dry eye. And there, there is a link, um, you know, pollutants can actually impact the ocular surface um, and then lead to symptoms of dry eye. So there's definitely a link there. And whether that air pollution actually could be outdoors or indoors as well. So I think we kind of often overlook or indoor air qua air quality as well. So yeah, all of those factors do come into play. Yeah, I was also struck by the fact that Bosch and Lom, uh, I'm looking on the you know Wikipedia page, it was founded in 1853. And yet this mm. is their first 
um, you know, FDA prescription, prescription product yes. because they focus yeah. so heavily on, uh, on over the counter products. So it's interesting to see after that much you yeah. know, history <laughs> um, to, to develop a, a prescription product and, everything that goes into that and the um of course getting approval but then you know the sale it's like just such a completely different pathway um Mm. i thought that was really striking yeah for sure new territory for you know a company that's been around like you know for so long has so much history in the um over-the-counter uh you know eye treatment space so it's uh really yeah this is I think it was a long time coming. I don't know. I, I think they just were so focused on their OTC stuff and um, that's just been so lucrative for them. But uh, yeah, I guess diversifying and branching out into the prescription arena as well. Um, it's just a matter of time. So yeah, that was cool to see. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com, or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.